But today, what we wanted to do was we wanted to hone in on something that is around this Memorial Day theme. You'll notice that we've got the table in front of us, which should clue you in. It's always a shortened sermon when we do that. And this particular sermon is not going to need a tremendous amount of exposition. This is a sermon that I actually got from my father years ago. So years ago, I had my first funeral, and I said, hey, Dad, what do you do for funerals? He was so gracious to talk me through it. He then sent me, this was back in the day, which neither of us were really using email. And so he sent me snail mail, his notes on, uh, on his funeral. I've made copies of them, still have it to this day. He sent me various different kinds of, of funerals that you would do. Um, and so as time would go on, i just call him, hey, Dad, would you, would you, what'd you do for this? What'd you do for that? Weddings, funerals, et cetera. And so this is a service, um, uh, uh, many ways, that has come directly from my father. I've added just a tad bit to it, but the guts are still, in essence, the same. Now, this Memorial Day weekend, we celebrate as a country. We celebrate the lives of those who have given their lives for our freedom. Is there any one of us this morning that got up and said, you know, I just don't know what's going to happen. If I get to church, I wonder if the government is going to come in and do something with us. Not a single one of us had that thought. And yet we have brothers and sisters all over the world that face that very thing every Sunday. So I mean it when I tell you I am so grateful, genuinely thankful for the men and women who have intentionally said, my life is not as important as the people that I'm going to serve. And so I'm going to do whatever is necessary to ensure that my family and my children, my children's children, etc., those that I don't even know, have the opportunity to live in the freedom that we hold so preciously in America. I will never apologize for being an American. It is not something that I want to shove down somebody's throat if they're from another country. I just will never apologize for being What we have been blessed with is ridiculous. And so we pause for a weekend to say, God, thank you for those who acted with such courage and bravery. Now we say this with regularity. It reminds us of another sacrifice that was made, and that's what this table is going to be about later on. In the same kind of way, what the American soldiers, those who have served, have done on a short-term basis, on a small scale, Christ did on a long-term basis, and on a grand scale. They did for us in something in time and space that would not last Christ has done something for us in time and space that will last throughout eternity. And so we want to say thank you on both ends. Pause. Remember those who have gone before us. Many of you have had brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, etc., that have fought, that have contributed towards this. I'm sure that you will be remembering them throughout um, this weekend. And today we'll pause for just a moment to remember what it is the Lord has done. Can I challenge you to something right now, though? I want to challenge you to pay attention to what it is that I have to say. It's not because it's a great sermon that I put together. It's the truths of the Scripture that's going to remind us. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to take notes. And I will tell you, the older that you get, both chronologically as well as the older that you get in your faith, the more mature that you become in your faith, this will mean more to you as time goes on. 
If you are young, both chronologically in your actual uh, literal age as well as young in the faith, um, it probably is not going to mean a tremendous amount to you right now. It's okay. Just as time goes on, it'll mean more. So, in the last few weeks, we have lost some tremendous um, men in the ministry. Some of them have a national reputation, international reputation. Many of you know that the man named Tim Keller, who was quoted so often from Bob Evans here, we didn't know if Bob was preaching one of his sermons or was he preaching one of Tim Keller's old sermons. Tim Keller went to be with the Lord um, not too terribly long ago. And as he told his children, as that time was approaching just a day or so away, he said, there's no downside for me. He was ready to go. A man named Harry Reeder, another one who so faithfully served in our denomination for years and years. Harry was gracious to give me a portion of his time when I came here to a while with him. Within the first three months, I was able to meet with him. And my main question to him was, Harry, what is it like to replace a longtime beloved senior pastor? And I asked him this, what was the greatest mistake that you made in doing that? And he shared it with me. He said, preaching through the book of Acts first. And do you know what my plan was? Was to preach through the book of Acts first. <laughs> series here. I went, let me pivot. Let me put that in year four. Series here. Both of these men could draw crowds because their words were so good. They were so gifted. Their minds were gifted. Their, their speech was gifted. Great oratory skill. But neither one of them gave a rip about folks coming to hear them speak. They really deeply desired for people to meet Jesus, to get in touch with Jesus. Neither one of them believed that their words held the power to change the lives of people. They really believed the person they were talking about held all power, all authority in heaven and on earth and could radically transform them. My own mentor, man, when I was um, asked, placed on sabbatical while serving in a church previous to this, some of you know that story. We, at the 20-week mark, lost a little girl, uh, the only time that we have ever been pregnant. And we lost that, that baby. And uh, I could not see truth. It just, spiritually speaking, my mind went dark. And I actually tried not only to get out of the ministry, but I actually tried to abandon the faith in the process. And the sticking point for me as I was dismissing everything in the Old Testament, walking through all these, you know, it wasn't really the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, and the sun didn't really stop, and this dude didn't really get swallowed by a fish, and et cetera. Doing a great job of dismissing all the things of God, and then this is literally what happened. I got to the cross and went, ah. It's true. I couldn't figure out a way to dismiss the cross. During that time, the church placed me, not punitive, but restorative in nature, placed me on sabbatical, and they gave me a man named Carl Wilhelm who would serve as uh, my mentor. Now, he and my father had worked together in Miami, Florida years ago. I knew Carl already. And Carl came and walked alongside of me and um, how God used that man in my life um, was, was profound. He, in the last few weeks, has gone to be with the Lord. I have had more funerals to serve, and it's an honor, and I mean that, a privilege to serve in them than at any other point in my time in ministry. 
It seems as though all of us are connected in some way, shape, or form to someone who has um, uh, left in, in a permanent sense um, this world. So my question is this, what do we do with that? The Scriptures tell us that we can grieve, but that we should grieve as those with hope. Two passages of Scripture, Romans, I'm sorry, Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Now, have you ever stopped to ponder that for a moment? God has the audacity to say that precious in his sight is the death of his children. Now, what would, what would make God say that? Either he has a view of death that we don't naturally have, or there's something radically wrong with this book right here. Because nobody in their right mind would say that. Paul In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, one verse that we're all familiar with, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, it's not going to be up on the screen because I wanted this one to to hit you as it's just the word is read over you. So while while I recognize that um, learning everything we know about the science of the brain learning, we should be reading while listening, I just want you to hear the context of what Paul was talking about. So listen to Philippians I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the world, Imperial Guard, on the whole Imperial Guard, uh, and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager ex- expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, what is he talking about right here in Philippians 1.21? He is saying that my entire existence is about the person of Christ. And so everything that I try to do in ministry is about Jesus. It's not about a church. It's not about the reputation of our particular group. Paul did not have bumper stickers, Philippi bumper stickers that were riding around. He didn't have t-shirts that were made up. He, He just said, I'm here to preach Christ to you. And so whether or not the reputation of the church was at at an all-time high, Um, That was of far less importance to Paul because it really, truly was about Jesus being here. Christ would take his rightful place. We would take our rightful place doing this, just pointing up to him constantly. For me to live is Christ. Everything in ministry 
is about Jesus. Everything in life is about Christ. And then he says, for me to die is gain. He means two things by this. Number one, he means that when he personally dies, there's going to be tremendous gain for him personally. We'll hit that just in a second. But the other thing he means is this, that if I die, I think it's actually going to advance the gospel. Because there's going to be a world that's going to be watching and they're going to see how it is that Christians are persecuted, how they are unjustly treated, and the world is eventually going to see, man, there's something about these believers who are are just laying their lives down. They're saying, whatever the Lord's will is, it doesn't mean that they never fight back. It doesn't mean that they don't try to escape. It just means that they seem to accept death in such a way that it doesn't wreck them. And so when I die, when I'm persecuted, a world is going to look in and say, huh, there's something to that, Paul. Now, would that describe in your mind the church today? That whether we live or whether we die, it doesn't matter because either way, our current life or our process of dying and death itself will serve to advance the gospel of Jesus. How many of us are far more concerned about losing some of our rights than we are the advance of the gospel? Please do not hear me say, bad you, bad me. It's a confession, and guess what? Christ died for that too. For to me to live is Christ and to die as gain. I ask you now, what is it that believers gain? What is it that we benefit? How can God say it's precious in his sight? What are the benefits that come to believers? First, we gain eternity in exchange of time. The first benefit is we gain eternity in exchange of time. We live right now knowing that we have a watch that many of us wear. Some of us now pull out our phones. I've noticed that watches are making a comeback. I don't know if that's because of the Apple Watch. I'm not sure, but I still like my watch. I still wear it more. We live in in, in a place where we measure time by the seconds, by the minutes, by the hours, by the days, weeks, months, and even years. And we even have one special day during the year in which I'm sorry, one special time in which we have to add a whole extra day because the way this thing works out. Everything is measured. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. No time to say hello, goodbye. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. That is the story of my life. I'm late to Target. I'm late to Walmart. But by nature, I'm just Late, and that's because we live in a culture that really values time. I probably should live in a different culture. Probably would be a better fit somewhere else where they, they don't care. We, our days, months are marked by time. Guess what happens in heaven after this life? Time is no longer an issue. Finally, I will be at home. Nobody will say, hey, Dave, um, do you know what time it actually is? Because nobody, we will not have a Timex, we will not have a Rolex in heaven. 
As impressive as that Rolex might look in this day and age, nobody will care because we gain eternity in exchange of time. Have you ever had a hard time thinking about the fact that God never, there never was a point in which he started existing? And have you ever had a hard time thinking about there will never be a time in which God will cease to exist? And so there's not going to be a time in which we will cease to exist. I, I, I don't get it. I don't grasp that. But in heaven, we are not going to have to even worry about it because it won't even be a concern. We just are. We gain eternity in exchange of time. James 4, 14 says, You know that uh, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you? are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First, we gain eternity in exchange of time. Secondly, in heaven, we gain full knowledge as opposed to partial knowledge here. Do you ever get frustrated with just not having enough knowledge? Now, I'm not talking about of trivial things. All right? If you're a scientist, please don't take this the wrong way. I'm not talking about you know, black holes. I'm not talking about things that we'll never be able to fully... I'm not talking about things that nobody can really understand except for God himself. I, I'm talking about, have you ever been frustrated that you don't have the knowledge that you need? You don't have the full knowledge of a circumstance or an event or a relationship, etc. It's there. In heaven, we will have full knowledge as opposed to partial knowledge. You won't be left in the dark. Now, does that mean that we will have all knowledge? No, God will still have knowledge of things that we won't have and never will have, but they won't matter to us because we will have full knowledge of everything that we need to know. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Whatever matters, you will have the full knowledge, meaning your mind will be filled to its maximum capacity. Thirdly, we gain freedom from temptation, trials, and tests. I promise you, the older that you get, the longer you walk with the Lord, you get tired of temptation. It loses a lot of its luster, sin does. And now you just feel bad about giving into it. I'm not saying that it, it loses all of its power. It just, now you get to see it more for what it really is. It's just, this is so stupid. Why am I doing this? It makes no sense. It's like this buffet has been given to me by God. I can feast at his table on his presence and his goodness, etc. And what do I do? I go to the dumpster and I start feeding myself out of the dumpster. In heaven, if you have a loved one who was, who was bold enough to share with you while they were here on the earth, the things that they struggled with, the thorn in their flesh, if you will, the thing that they just hated having to come back to God over and over and over again with. That loved one who, know, who knew Jesus, who, who, who surrendered controls, etc., that loved one is no longer facing any temptation, trial, or test. 
No longer a faith to be molded and worked on and shaped. In every wedding that I do, as we get to the rings, I grab the rings and I let them say, you look at the rings and you see that this is precious metal and metal is made precious through hard work and diligence, through fiery trial. Your marriage, although blessed by God, must be worked at continuously. And the way God typically works on our marriages is through fiery trial. It's not typically through the, I just think that we see everything the same way. We're on the same page at all times. You complete my every thought, love it. It's not that. It's the one that we're, we're, try, we're trying to work through difficult things because God brings along this particular person who has a lot of wisdom and experience. This particular person who has a lot of wisdom and experience, he brings them together because neither one of them in and of themselves have the full picture of God but brought together, we have a much better picture. There's no longer any trials and tests that are necessary because there's no sin. So your loved one who knew the Lord is freed from temptation, trial, and test. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will Bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The race is finished. There is no longer a fight to be had. As long as we are in this world, we must stay in a wartime mentality. It's all peace with the Lord. Fourthly, we gain victory over the fear of power. I'm sorry, over the fear of and power of death. We gain victory over the fear of and power of death. If you do not have some measure of fear of, 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 of death, you're just not human. Or you've just reached the place in your life um, uh, where you just are so convinced that God is good, etc. Um, most of you should have some measure of fear of death. You should. Because death is not natural. It was not a part of the original design. It is a result of sin. Do you remember Jesus when he approaches death? There's a, two sisters that had called him, <clears throat> excuse me, had beckoned him to come. Their brother <clears throat> was dying and, and he gets there and, and they come out. One of them comes out and says, if you'd have been here. Oh, if you'd have been here, Jesus, then things could have been different. The scripture tells us then that he looks at the grave and, and um, it, it, when he gets there, he screams at the grave. He was angry at death. We gain a freedom over the fear of and even the power of death. All of us, naturally speaking, will do everything we can to avoid death. If you don't, you're weird. There will be nothing for us to avoid later on. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up, O victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Fifth, <clears throat> we will gain complete peace and joy. Not a fleeting peace, an impartial peace, not a momentary peace. 
we will gain a complete peace and a complete joy. It is so common now for me to take joy in the things that I should be taking joy in, the things that are good and right to take joy in, be it uh, uh, Judith or my boys or other relationships or, or a sunset, whatever it may be. It is good and right to take joy. But guess how long that lasts? There's something else that will take its place at some point, some other anxiety, some other worry that I will choose. I'm not a victim. It's my fault. I will choose to put my mind on as opposed to enjoying the things, as opposed to trusting Christ and having the peace and joy that comes with that. I'll choose to be anxious. In heaven, when Jesus returns, your loved one right now is not experiencing any measure of anxiety. It is complete peace and complete joy. You may have gone 10 or so years without hearing your parent laugh because the latter years of their life got so difficult. They may have had a personality that just didn't do that very often. What's happening right now for those who die in Christ, for the believer, the children of God, for those who are there, I I assure you right now, there's some laughing going on because there's joy. You know what they're not doing? I wonder how there are down there. I wonder how this is going to turn out. Oh, my goodness. They're just looking around, seeing Jesus, seeing the others, having a blast. Probably aren't thinking about us at all. John 16, 22, so you also... So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Sixthly, we gain sight of Jesus. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now and what we, ha- what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him As he is, we gain sight of Jesus. I just don't have the time, but do you know how precious it is? There are two stories in the New Testament where people had been blind, either from birth or for many years, and the first sight that they got to see was the face of Jesus. Can you imagine what that will be like for us? Many of us have prayed hours on end, poured out our tears on our bed, etc., wanting so desperate for God to move and to change. And we've just said, God, I need you here. I need you. If I could just see you, you'll see him. Your loved one is seeing you. Years ago when our kids were <clears throat> so young, this, we had gotten on this trip, and it, it, it felt like it took 87 hours to get from our house to the mountain place where my parents live. It just was one stop after the next. And it was just, it was a nightmare. <clears throat> and we were driving there and, and along the way, we had said, why do we keep doing this? We, we, why do we keep making this trip? And it was so late at night and the kids had all gone to sleep, but then one of them woke up and then they woke up. And then what happened was this BB and Paul Paul were standing out because they knew we were coming. And he saw his grandparents there, and he says, Baby, Papa, screaming, 
windows are up. They can't hear anything just yet. We're driving. And the other kids wake up and they look and they're pointing. They're screaming. This is why we do this. When you see him, you will have unbridled joy. And you won't give a rip what anyone around you thinks. My gut tells me you will go nuts in your response to seeing the man who redeemed your very soul. Seventh, we gain fellowship with Jesus. Not just do we gain sight with Jesus, we gain fellowship with him, sitting down with him in his presence. At that point, we will be able to hold on to him. My gut tells me he's going to give every single one of us a hug. And it'll probably happen on a regular basis. And you will sit and you will talk. And you know what you won't have to do is to rehash all the sins because that's what I do a lot with my time in prayer with Jesus. I come back and say, God, I'm sorry for this. You will sit with him. He will laugh. You will laugh. You will have unhindered fellowship with Jesus. In my Father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Then I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Eighth, and there's only nine. We gain a place of honor and dignity. No matter what it is that you have experienced in this life, you may have been put in situations where you felt like you were a piece of trash, where you were used up and spit out. You may have experienced things in your life that have made you feel as though you were not worth the dung on the bottom of a shoe. But the scriptures tell us that Christ is going to take his children with him And not because of the work that they have done, that we have done, but because of the work that he has done, we actually are going to receive a place of honor and of dignity. Our dignity will be fully restored. No one will be used. No one will be marginalized. Everyone will be seen in the same way that God created them, with intrinsic worth and value. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me, listen, the crown of righteousness, with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Finally, and it is out of my notes but I remember it. Ninthly, we will will join the family of God who has gone before us. I dread the day that my parents die. At a wedding last weekend, I got a text from my mom that my father had gone into the hospital. And my father has um, a bad heart, and that's just a reality. He has had multiple valves. His brothers have the same kind of heart condition that he does. 
His heart doctor said it this way, this is a really good and kind man who has a really angry physical heart. And so I did the wedding. It's a, the weddings are a joy to be with. I did not stay for the reception, but made my way um, up there to that. And, and I got a chance to, um, on the way there, come to grips with the reality of this day is coming. Now, if you were to talk to my father, he would tell you, oh, I'm ready. I am ready to be with Jesus. And I will tell you that his sons are not ready for him to be with Jesus. But I really do take solace in this. At some point in the near future, I am going to have to do the most difficult funeral of my life. And it will be burying the most godly man that I know. And many of you know what that's like. But I tell you, <clears throat> these are not idle words for me. I am comforted in the fact that I know that at some point in the future, when the Lord is done with me, and my purpose is done in this generation, I will join my father and my grandfather both of whom gave their very lives to establish this great denomination. I will join many others. It will be the Apostle Paul who wrote these scriptures. It will be David. It will be both of my grandmothers. I will join those who have been known throughout the world, and I will join those who have never been known by a single other soul. And we all will collectively gather and with great joy will lay our crowns down at the feet of Jesus. Because we don't just get to heaven because we've lived a good life. We don't get to heaven because we've said yes to good things and no to bad things. We all will lay our crowns down because the only way to experience all nine of these benefits is by bowing the knee of submission to Jesus in this life. It is by throwing our hands up in the air, surrendering the controls of our life and saying, I place no hope whatsoever in what I can do for you, God. All of my hope and faith lies in the person and the work of Jesus. He lived the life that I could not live. He died the death that I should have died. He was raised again from the dead on the third day. He has overcome the penalty and the power of sin. And all who come to him by faith will be called the children of God. And all of us will gather and we'll swap stories about all that God did for us. And we'll have an entire eternity to spend hearing of the glory of Jesus Christ.